0: This is Seth Brentaway with Encore Green Environmental. This is Marvin Nash with
1: Encore Green Environmental.
2: Thank you both for joining the program today. Very excited to have you on, talk a little Encore Green Environmental, a little conservation and what you guys are doing for the oil and gas industry. Let's start off by maybe talking about the genesis of the company a little bit.
0: Well, we uh, on Port Green is a privately owned company by my wife, and uh, it, it's really interesting. We we're actually an agriculture company. We're we're not an E and P or oil and gas, and and the reason we're an agriculture company is because where most of the what the industry calls produced water exists is on agriculture land, and. We felt like if we were going to create a third option for produced water, which the industry calls it, uh, in the ag world, we call it byproduct. But we felt like if we were going to be able to to create a pathway to do something else other than pump it down in the ground or leave it in a, a pond or an evaporation pond, that it was going to have to exist in the presence of the agriculture landowner and stuff. And uh, having worked for EOG for some time as a uh, cost control person and a uh, logistics guy back when oil was $35, $40 and it was really hard to keep things going, uh, one of our big expenses was getting rid of produced water. So I was constantly negotiating with oil and gas, I mean with uh, midstream and disposal companies and a uh, pretty famous basketball player by the name of Dan Issel said that he owned some interest in some disposal ponds in Wyoming and he said Marvin if you'd figure out how to get rid of that water or reuse it I wouldn't have to charge you as much because I wouldn't have to build new ponds and uh, don't ever give me a good challenge and walk off because I immediately went to trying to figure out how to repurpose Uh, The industry's problem of of produced water. So that was three years ago, and that's our two years ago, and that's kind of how we got started, and that's what we're still working on.
2: A couple things I wanted to ask you about, based on you know your your history of the company, is well, one is the water innovation. Just you know, innovation can be a wheel. A lot of people realize it doesn't have to be a computer, although computers have really helped innovation over the last twenty years. But in some cases, it's just figuring out new ways to plant things or you know move things around. So talk to me a little bit about innovation, either from a computer or just you know what do they call that feng shui or uh, you know that type of thing. Talk to me about the innovation within your industry and how that's really been able to transition you from ag and into energy.
0: Well, uh, that's a great that's a great question. I wish I'd get that question more often. Uh, I'll try to answer it in thirty minutes or less.
2: But, hey, 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 take your time, man. We love passion on this show. Well, it, it's uh, and this is where Seth actually
0: came in. Uh, the, the, the birth of what Seth does came into it. So, produced water is the it's the kid from the wrong side of the tracks. Okay, it, it's the beat down challenge of just day-to-day life. Produced water is a hazmat with an exemption. And just because of what it is, was a challenge within itself. The, the other part of it was, back during the cold bed methane days, They thought they had come up with a way, because that water, the the constituencies or, you know, the TDSs and everything, are not really off the chart, like some of the 60, 80, 120,000 parts per million of salt content or whatever in produced water. And so what I did was I didn't really reinvent. I just reverse engineered the things that did not work. In, In other words, we have an agronomist that has track records of, of millions of gallons of water that were put on the ground in a successful manner. But but all we see when we have the conversation is the salt grass and the, the ground that got contaminated, I hate to use it, not really contaminated, it had salt water put on it, and it, and it didn't function properly. And that's what the media and that's what the world became aware of. And so, what were the problems with coal bed methane? Number one was, there was so much money floating around, everybody got a brand new center pivot. Everybody was trying to get rid of millions of gallons of water, and the oil and gas companies were doing that, so they put too much water on too few acres. I was raised in South Texas, graduated in 1973 from Edinburgh High School. In 1972, one of my my FFA speech for this in the state public speaking contest was about conservation, and and what are we going to do in the year 20 in the year 2000 when we have depleted our land and we're asking our ranchers to do more and produce more. So, this, so this had been something that I had, had talked about and thought about forever and ever and ever. So it wasn't a matter of reinventing. But it was a matter of figuring out what didn't work and making it work. And so I, I guess in a way, I guess that is part of reinventing. So I had to redesign the entire thought process. So now I have this, I have this water that's got a bad reputation. So how do we rehabilitate it? So the challenge got to be, how do we create traceability? So in the agriculture world, the the mom or the dad or the, the man or the lady buying the steak or buying the produce or buying the the whatever they're gonna eat, they want to know where it came from and how it was raised. So we've created traceability. And and part of that came about from the uh the, the, the milk problems that we had in canada many many years back but all of the technology was already there for the traceability in other words i can buy a cantaloupe from walmart this afternoon i can eat it and i can get sick and i can go to the hospital at three in the morning and they'll ask me what i ate and i'll tell them and they'll say well that cantaloupe could have been contaminated where did you buy it from well i bought it from walmart well which walmart well i bought it from the walmart and cheyenne the old one or the new one the one on the interstate or the one down in on bell range and i can identify all these things well you know what they can do they can go back to the packing house or to the to the, the produce shed they can go back to the temperature of the refrigerator where the walmart was kept they can find out what truck it was hauled in They can find out what field it came out of. And they can do all of this in probably 48 to 72 hours. And I said, okay, here's my answer. I have to do the same thing with the water. So that's where Seth came into play with creating the software that creates an entire pathway of traceability. Because we have to satisfy the consumer that we're using safe water. So, that was that was the scientific data process, and, and I'll kind of let Seth comment on what all he's done, and then, Jason, we'll get back to, I'm sure we'll get to the cost and the affordability, but, you know, we can take a, a calf, a bovine calf that is born, and we can tell the consumer everything that calf consumed up until the time it was turned into the steak that we ate. We can track our chickens. We can track our eggs. We can track, you know, I I can get sick and go to the hospital and they can draw my blood and they can tell what I drank and what I didn't drink. So I just felt like if we're going to, and I shouldn't say if we're going to, because we're already accomplishing this. We've We've already done the pilot. We've already created the software. If we're going to solve this problem, we have to be transparent to the consumer. I, I get kind of tickled and frustrated and aggravated with ENP companies at the same time. I'll go talk to them and I say, Look, we want to take this water. We want to clean it up. We, we want to uh, regenerate it. We want to put it on the ground and, and we'll release you of the liability. Well, we'll, 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 well, no, 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 we can't do it because there's liability. Well, either the water's okay or the water isn't okay. And, and you can't have it both ways. Uh, I come from a rodeo background. You know, I, I was a professional rodeo clown for 30 years. And when we would deal with animal welfare issues, for many years we said, oh, no, 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 you can't go back behind the chutes. We, we, you can't look back there. And then we learned that what we had to do was we had to say, come on, let me show you. Let me show you the mama to this bucking horse, and let me show you this calf. And, and And we had to have transparency, and so we advocate that we have to do the same thing with the water. We, we can no longer hide behind the fact that it's a hazmat with a with an exemption. We can clean this water, and it can not can it not only be put to a good purpose. It has to because one of these days we may run out of aquifer water. But, but I'll let Beth I'll let you ask Seth the questions about the 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 computer side of it the the, uh, the, the technical side of it because he can address those better than I can.
2: You bet. Thank you, Marvin Nash. We're going to transition here to Seth. Is it friend away? Friend away. Okay. Yeah, all right the way. Yeah. I, I, did, I did get it right. The okay. Of the, of the old Dutch word. Away. Okay. Great. The the question I, I you know I was going to ask uh, Marvin Nash as as uh, the owner of the company, but you know this actually might make more sense to you, Seth. Which is, um, we've had John Gibson from One Oak on our program, and Harold Ham from Continental Resources, James Volker from. Uh, whiting even lee tillman from marathon oil and i'm not saying that the name drop i mean i am but i'm not the reason i bring it up is because these are leaders in the industry who have all said there's a paradigm shift that's happened in the industry the horizontal flushing which used to be called hydraulic fracturing but we call it horizontal flushing here um it changed the industry. And then you go to the HR departments. And boy, I tell you what, big data has changed the way HR departments do things. So when I when I take a look at the different silos and pillars within each different industry, I'm sorry, each different department, this is exactly why you got brought in, Seth, is because Marvin saw the, the signs that the paradigm shift was happening. And here you are bringing in that new technology that is going to change how we view things, and I wrote down reinvent water, and that's essentially what you guys have done.
1: Yeah, I think that we we just really reinvented the way to, to use water and repurpose it. And and to, to be clear, I don't want to you know uh, uh, steal anybody's thunder. I I've really come in and just tried to help facilitate what what Marvin's vision was and 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 is. And really, uh, it comes down to a, a patent pending process that that Marvin has developed called Conservation by Design. And so the, the, the software uh, programs and some of the technology we're utilizing to, to track that, to document it, to collect and analyze all the different data that's going to be coming in with that process is where I kind of come in. But I think one of the big paradigm shifts, uh, at least as far as what we are looking at uh, in land application of water, Marvin mentioned in the past, we have the coal bed methane days. Um, where we tried to look at what could we have done better. And really the paradigm shift, as I see it a lot, was that the shift was that we went to focus on what the soil needed and not necessarily just, um, you know, some of the opinions or, or uh, of science-based opinions, don't get me wrong. But we we really thought that we ought to look at the soil and ask the soil what the, what it needed um, and then we clean the water to, to fit the soil. And then we needed to have a way to be able to track all that once we put the water on the ground, what's happening with the soil, how much how much moisture does it have, you know, what is the salinity in it, you know, what are the nitrogen contents, What are you know, we need to be able to monitor that so that, I mean, what good is being able to, to track and trace all this stuff you we know, you don't know where you put it and what the effects were. So we, we have created a, a system to be able to track all that from grade, cradle to grave. So we, we would take, you know, where did the water come from, what what were the constituencies in the water, we test all that stuff, and then we look and we say, okay, well, what parameters do we need to clean this water to, and that's where we go and we ask the soil. We'll get the soil samples, and, and then we clean that water to match the soil, which also includes, different regulatory um, um, uh, parameters that we've had to work very hard and diligently with uh, regulators to develop. Uh, Wyoming is is the closest, really, and, and we've just um, got some um, pathways working forward with, with the state of Wyoming, um, and so we've made some really good headway there. Um, but as we've developed and, and worked through this, we've been able to, to alleviate a lot of the concerns that uh, environmentalists have have voice we, we martin didn't just reinvent you know how to put the water on the ground what we really needed to do was reframe the conversation and martin started that conversation on our, and our communications director jeff holder um out of california has been really influential in, in helping us to make sure that we're explaining this in a simple way that everybody can understand and start kind of directing the conversation in ways that make sense to everybody i mean we're dealing with. Uh, you know, Marvin mentioned we're an agriculture company, but we're an agriculture company who's trying to have conversations with energy companies, with with regulators, and with, with environmentalists, and everybody speaks a different language, and and all of this can be such a benefit to everybody's wheelhouse of expertise or, or concern, and um, we're trying to help facilitate that that discussion, and then and then actually put uh, to action um, what these ideas and in the and. Um, and the solutions that we're finding to the concerns that everybody is, has voiced, um, throughout all these conversations. So, um, that's kind of the long and the short of it. We, our, our, our website that we use for tracking all of it is called Agwater Solutions. Agwatersoilsolutions.com. It's still in somewhat of a beta phase where we're adding on, and uh, bulking on different aspects of our traceability. Uh, but all of the information that's on there will be public to, to, or, uh, will be put out there public for anybody who wants to go see it so that that transparency is there. Um, you'll, if you were to look on that website, you'll see that there uh, areas on maps that are identified, um, that show these are all, uh, and some of these on here are, are, are sample examples. Um, but you will show where the water was applied, where it came from, the batching, everything. Um, one of the things that we've able, to kind of help uh, facilitate too is designing some of these projects. I mean, we mentioned that the the name of the patent pending process is Conservation by Design, and the reason it's named that is because every every project is unique, and so every project is going to be developed in a little bit different way. Always in the same way that it's going to be designed to fit the needs of the soil, um, and so. This uh, One of the things on this website that we've done is we've taken information that we can get from the states, from the, the oil and gas commissions from the state, uh different states who are collecting um, how much produced water is uh, uh, produced and where. And so we can have the ability to go in, for example, in the state of Wyoming. You, you, you go in on the site and you select the state of Wyoming, and you put in your section, township, and range that you want to know, uh, find out information on. And that section, township, and range comes up. It will tell you how much water is produced out of that section. It will tell you the operators that are operating within that section, and then it will actually convert that the the water increments from barrels produced to gallons acre-feet and acre-inches. Acre. Again, facilitating that that shift in in language between uh, you, you know uh, agriculture from the agriculture side. the in, in, the producing side, um, so those are some of the things that we're actually trying to facilitate in in our doing, and we're excited to, to tell people about it.
2: I wanted to ask uh, about the water numbers, and then also I wanted to make sure I asked Marvin Nash about the egg energy connection and just kind of some some of the background there that led you into it. One of the one of the t- I don't know first four or five stories I did was on how farmers and oil and, and ranch and gas people seem to get along pretty well for the most part, the ones that seem to work together. So I wanted to ask you about that. But um, before before I get into that relationship, I did want to ask about the water numbers. In the Bakken, uh, in the Permian, both the you know number one and number two basins came out in the last three, four years and said they're going to need 20, 50, 70 times more water than what they first anticipated 10 five years ago um are you guys kind of aware of that you know the numbers anywhere from 10 times to 70 times depending on what part of the shale play you're in and then you know this the sheer demand for water so I, I look at what you guys are doing as your timing is pretty good yeah well,
1: yeah no, and I'll, I'll go ahead brother. well i was just going to say what's that company seth 3b b3 b3, b3. D three and in fact that was he, he mentioned that company that I think you were sitting next to on the panel when we met you over at the Energy Expo. Yeah. They they came to
0: New Mexico and they came up with some numbers. And even if they repurposed every barrel of water that's coming out of the ground to refrack with, they're still gonna have ninety percent or ninety three percent of it that has to be disposed of. So what what our computer data allows us to do is to do a three- to five- to seven- to ten-year agriculture prediction based on the amount of water coming out of the ground. So priority one is the water that comes out needs to be cleaned up, reconditioned, primarily, number one, to go back for fracking. That way we're not taking fresh water out of the aquifer. So let's repurpose a 100%. let us figure out how to repurpose 100% of that. Then, whatever's left, the rancher can put to beneficial use, making sure that it's clean to the right constituency and parameters, and it can go back to grow grass, uh, row crops, and, and our newest add on is creating healthy soil to create carbon capture and carbon sequestration. And, and that, that part of what our company is doing is just taking off like a spaceship. But but we got to back up because you mentioned some really heavy hitters in the energy industry with Ham and just John, all of them. The one thing that we had to come up with was if you're going to go talk to a major E&P, at the end of the day, they're usually publicly traded. They have to... They have a responsibility to their investors and to their shareholders. There's only four numbers that you can talk about when you talk about water. What is the cost of trucking? What is the cost of infrastructure? What is the cost of the disposal down into the well or into the pond? And and what is the cost of buying new water? And if you add those four numbers up, if you cannot clean, repurpose, and get rid of their water within the, the capacity of those four numbers, then you're wasting your time talking to them. And that, that's that's just a, a reality. That's a that's a fact. So if, if trucking's two dollars and and infrastructure is a million dollars a mile, and disposal into an open pit disposal or into a, a disposal well is thirty to forty cents, and Buying new water is 40 to 70 cents a barrel. If you can't add all those numbers up and be less money than what they're spending, there's no need for them to make a change. So the one thing that we had to figure out how to do was how to make it fit within those that judiciary process. Here was the problem. The companies cleaning the water We're saying, oh, yeah, we can do it, but it's $7 a barrel or $5 a barrel or $6 a barrel. We had to figure out who owned most of those companies. And we had to tell some of the major players, y'all just go over there and keep doing refinery work. Quit bugging the oil and gas companies, because until you can clean water for anywhere from $0.17 to $2.50 or $3, depending on what the trucking looks like, you're wasting the energy industry's time. Because they, they have no reason to clean water just to clean water. They don't need to practice. You know? <laughs> they they need to repurpose that water to meet the need that you're talking about, that ten to seventy times, but at the end of the day, they have to be able to do that within a, a fiduciary component that fits their business model. Now, we we've been able to, to identify those goals and we are working with some technologies that actually help us reach those goals but before you start any of the conversation before you can do conservation by design you have to take into the reality of what the companies the enps are spending at this point in time now one of the things that we have added on thanks to some of our software and to some assessed developments and stuff is we can now take and get a benchmark on putting that water on arid ground. There's no ground available that produces more carbon capture than arid ground because the grass is closer to the ground. It has less root uh, depth than anything else. And when you start increasing that, it has more potential. It has more potential to grow grass better than evergreen trees or corn crops or whatever. And you can put it in a set-aside years at a time So you can actually create a carbon capture. So one of the interesting things for us is the company that gets demonized the most for creating air quality issues and for just being in the fossil fuel business actually is a solution to our our air quality problem. And, And we're just now have figured out how to make that a reality. But the data and stuff, and it's through what Jeff Holder identified as our "just add water" initiative. So you partner with your farmer, your rancher. You put together a a catastrophic management plan. If you're in the agriculture, and there's a lot of moving parts here, and it can get really confusing. But if you're in the agriculture business, and you got 200 head of cows, and you're raising 300 bales of hay to get them through the winter, and you either hit a drought or get a really long winter. What breaks the farmer or rancher is not having to get rid of the cows. It's when i got to replace those cows because I didn't have enough feed to get them through the winter or through the tough times. But if I take the water that's available because of where the oil and gas wells are, now I can solve that problem. But along the way, I can actually quantify based on white papers that have been done, research that's been done by Duke and Colorado State and in and, uh in Edmonton and just a, a, several different universities, I can actually take that water and create carbon capture by creating a healthy soil and a healthy plant. Have we got you confused enough yet? Hear me you, you? No, <laughs> no,
2: no not, not yet. Uh, I, I did want to circle back to the carbon sequester, the carbon capture, so I'm glad you, you brought that up again because... That is one of the fastest growing areas in the energy world. I, I'm not. I, I'm not sure about the other world. I mean, it's its own industry. I get it. But in North Dakota, they've they've pretty much gone with academia to go up at the University of North Dakota. They have an Energy and Environmental Research Center up there, and they're doing a lot with the uh, CO two capture. Working with Senator Hovind, Senator Kramer, Congressman Armstrong. So there's a lot of of that happening in North Dakota. Talk to me about the private sector on what's going on there. I mean, uh, you, you say it's, it's, it's really growing on your side of things too, huh?
0: Well, yeah, and and, and the Department of Energy, which funded the project in North Dakota, uh, we actually got a little email we're pretty proud of that. that they said, whatever we can do from the Department of Energy to help you, we're here to help and support what you're doing. Uh, The the, the private sector side is you have all of this grassland, millions and millions and millions of acres. And we're not a cap and trade component, but we are a volunteer market component. And to be able to do those things, you have to have an exchange, uh, a registry, and a protocol. And Steph has been putting a lot of time and energy to develop those. Probably the only other way to avoid that would be to go to a cryptocurrency-type trade of, of, of uh, carbon credits and, and those kind of things. But the, the reality of it is Mother Earth provides the process and the procedure. Uh, we learned about it in 6th and 7th grade. It was called photosynthesis. We all learned about it in physical science. All we have to do is just add water. So you have to have that relationship with the provider of the water, or the producer of the water, which is the oil and gas or the energy company. You connect that to the farmer rancher who has the acreage, you, pick, you grow your grass and improve your grass quality by improving your soil health, and all of a sudden, bingo, you're creating more carbon capture. You can, you can uh, mob, graze sections of land or acreages, and now the cows walk on the improved grass, and so you're releasing more oxygen. So all of these different entities, agriculture, energy, environmental, science, they they all were there, Encore Green Environmental through Conservation by Design, just figuring out the way to put them all together.
2: Sure, you're just layering things in and putting it together hey seth how much of this is a simulation process in the beginning stages
1: uh how do you mean simulation
2: well it just seems like there's so so many ways to use simulators these days you know because really what what marvin nash is talking about is you know layering in knowledge from the the science side layering in knowledge from environment side layering in knowledge from energy and ag and you know and he's saying this isn't new here we're just you know, putting pieces of the puzzle together and, and we got a new color on the Rubik's Cube side or something like that. I, I did not know if you have a simulation process to see how it looks ahead of time or if it's just if, if it's pretty cut and dry just off the numbers.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, I mean, a science-based we kind of cut dry off the numbers. I think what we find is, is that when, when Marvin's saying that all the stuff was there, all the technology, all the know-how was there, I think what we're finding is, is just like in anywhere else, you know, Jason, people get kind of blinders in their own lane, and they don't think outside of it. And so when when you're kind of getting into the mode of re, reverse engineering things, you're you're looking at it just from a little bit different perspective, and that allows you to kind of see all the puzzle pieces on the table and how can they actually work together rather than being a puzzle piece and how do I step out of that box. And so I think that's really what's, what's gone on here. And, and if I understand your question, but maybe a little more direct to your question as far as, maybe simulating carbon, carbon sequestration or, or, or predicting the carbon capture potential. Um, along those lines, if that's what you're meaning, if it's not, this is still important to cover. No, it, are, it, it, um, it is,
2: it is, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, but the, in, in, and Colorado State University has developed a, a program called Comet Farm. Uh, I first learned about this from, uh, from a fellow at the Grasslands Research Center named Justin Turner here, uh, just outside of Cheyenne, he works with um, ARS and NRCS, and we've been working a lot, a lot with those folks, making sure we get this right again, and, and so anyway, they developed a program that allows you to, uh, based off of the, the white paper science that they've done, you know, they, they go into a lab or whatever and then do some tests and say, or maybe maybe a small section of ground somewhere and do some tests and, and study it, and then off of those models, they'll build. A, a computer model that they can come in and make predictions now. You know, you enter in your parameters for whatever your, your, uh, project looks like, you know, um, what is the baseline and then, and then it can give you projections based off how much your precipitation was and what type of plant life was there and how long that happened. And they can give you those types of predictions. So that's there. Um, the problem, and I don't necessarily say it's a problem, it's almost an exciting opportunity. Um, you know, around the world, especially in arid grasslands, a lot of the carbon sequestration techniques have been implemented. They they haven't been able to add water on the scale that we're able to do in arid grasslands simply because they haven't had it. Um, But because we now can say, okay, this is how much water we're going to have in a specific area over a specific period of time, you can now come up with some real solid projections of what to expect uh, going down the road. And that's helped us with our carbon sequestration efforts because, as you may be aware, when when folks are coming in to to offset their their GHG um, output, they're oftentimes having to invest money into a project in advance, and then and then the carbon capture uh, needs to be realized over x amount of time, or there's a, either a penalty or some type of um, balancing out mechanism that that takes place, and so. Um, with being able to have uh, the, the prediction of the water, knowing what's been produced there, how long, and, and being able to project what will be for how long, um, you know, we're able to apply the water when the ground needs it rather than just waiting for rain. So we have a lot of benefits that allow us to make those, those predictions based off of the, the science that we've been getting from the work the other universities and stuff have, have really kind of laid the groundwork. Again, a lot of this stuff is... It, it's been out there, just nobody's really seen how to do it. Um, one, of the, one of the protocols that's been really interesting in my mind and, and would apply really well here in the rangelands in Wyoming is they, it's a rangeland man pro, range management protocol uh, through the verified carbon standard that um, this is a national standard or an international standard. So if we were to follow those same protocols in, in developing our, our carbon capture um, then those methodologies and, and calculations have all been verified and peer reviewed and uh, and, and approved through the the carbon standard. So um, you know there's pathways to move forward, even though that it hasn't necessarily been done in the same uh, context or, or perspective that we're looking at doing it. Simply because we have the water. Did that
2: answer that, or, or did I miss something? Different? No, I'm, I'm, um, I'm following you. To me, in my mind, I'm going anything that moves us more towards a permaculture concept. I love because I, I've been following different forms of agriculture and and different types of growing, and um, from you know rainforest to Wyoming grasslands, and um, it seems like you know anytime you can get that natural. Uh, ecosystem built within its own area. You know, you guys mentioned earlier about the different types of water. I look at the, the, at land the same way, and so do energy companies. And so maybe they got to look at water that way too. Is that it's so specific? Every ten feet, you need a new study. It seems like uh, nowadays, because there's so much that goes into water. But um, anyway, yeah, I'm I'm following you. I you guys are just tickling my mind a little bit. It's a bubble gum for the mind session here. I love it. So um,
1: yeah, I mean we're. we're- the stuff that we're, What we're pursuing is a, a, a high level, you've got to be able to think, you know, kind of broad. Um, and we're carrying, a, covering a lot of different areas, um, you know, like I say, trying to pull all these different pieces together. But it, it's pretty exciting. And, and to your point, to the types of carbon capture methodologies that actually improve uh, our environment, I mean, uh, one of the things that, that we have, the position we've taken is, and, and there's an article that if you go on to um, uh, EncoreGrainEnvironmental.com or, or even BeneficialUseWaterAlliance.com, we can talk about that maybe a little later. But one of the things that Jeff Holder has helped uh, uh, help us communicate is that we're really not on anyone's side. We're not on the you know, we have a lot of tension, all these different, uh, groups of people that we work with sometimes obviously don't get along. And I don't think that's too much of a secret. <laughs> sometimes they butt heads, right? Um, and so what we've done is take a step back and say, look, we're not on the energy guys' side. We're not trying to put you out of business either. We're not. We're not on the environmentalist side. Our, uh, you know, we, we love the environment, but we're not trying to be anti anybody. Um, and so, you know, regulation. We know it needs to be there. We don't want it to be overreach. Our Our focus is on the is on the soil. We need to make sure. That, that we're doing our proper stewardship of, of the soil. And so that goes along with carbon sequestration, too. You know, I mean, there's some people of the opinion that pulling as much carbon out of the sky is not going to make any difference in, in, as far as the global warming. To us, you know what, um, we, we're about improving soil health, and along with that comes carbon sequestration. So um, we're, we're looking about solutions. Not about you know arguing of the ideological stuff, but I and so that's one of the things that I liked too to your point was that we're really improving soil health, and, and you know what, maybe that conversation about carbon being pulled out of the air at some point will, if we find out that doesn't that that was never really needed, or maybe it was really needed, either way, we win, and the and the ag producer really wins when they have improved soil health, so um. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a pretty exciting thing, and, and being a part of water in any respect is going to have some pretty far-reaching implications just because it's so fundamental to everything.
2: Marvin Nash and <laughs> Seth Friendaway with us with Encore Green Environmental Conservation by Design. All right, I want to layer in a couple things here. We're talking about layering in you guys. We're talking high-level conversation here, and I'm loving it. So let's. Um, I'm, I'm going to layer in the paradigm shift of the oil and gas industry. We talked about the different departments. I, I believe that the oil and gas industry needs to reinvent their PR. They they, they do. Uh, Seth, you and I at the Energy Expo in Gillette, we talked about the millennials and some of the uh, misconceptions and some of the you know the I guess the reputation that they seem to have gotten all of a sudden. And then also uh, I want to fold in Boulder, Austin, and Fargo. Uh, The Boulder, uh, Colorado is, uh, boy, I heard that over and over at the conference. I've heard it about Austin. And then of course being in North Dakota, the same thing with Fargo, which is they're getting control of the governments. These uh, cities that are are labeled liberal cities that win awards for being the most liberal cities and nations uh, and, and states are winning these awards. Now, when I grew up, the energy industry wasn't political, so that that's an entirely new thing for me uh, within the last 10 years, but I think it has to do with the paradigm shift of the image as well. Seth, what we talked about with the millennials, um, the way I want to co- contextualize it is this, that um, I just got off a conversation not even an hour ago with a gentleman about millennials, and I said, listen, here's what we need to understand about millennials is that The way that they are raised is everything's the best and everything's the worst. And then they got to go out in the world and they're trying to figure out that not everything is the best and not everything is the worst. There's some things involved in the world of gray out there. And so they're trying to find their identity. They're being told that they're the best at creating industry and they're ruining every industry. So what I have noticed is once they get in the oil and gas industry, they seem to really like the oil and gas industry, they seem to really, all of a sudden, not be a protester against it, or have this conception that it's the evil fossil fuel world. I've seen it for ten years now, before my own eyes. Um, you know, t- talk to me a little bit about just kind of what I said, because this is a this is a tough t- conversation to have here, because. The energy industry needs to reinvent its image. I mean, look at it. It got banned in Colorado. It got passed in Oregon. Wyoming did a BLM BLM, uh, ban. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are having the public conversation about banning fracking. And um, the new Green Deal ends the industry in 10 years. And so I I look at it like it's a very hard conversation to have, but it almost is one that needs to be had. So- um, Anyway, that's, I, I got to get off my soapbox, guys. I'm sorry. I just, I, I saw an opportunity no, I, and I, I, I pounced. I,
0: I, I'm going to let Seth answer you and then I'm going to jump in because because I, I don't disagree with you uh, at all, but I'll explain after Seth kind of, because Seth, Seth's that younger person. I'm, I'm old, you know, but, but hey, I'll share some stuff with you to, to address your concerns. Hey, hey,
2: Marvin, in the industry, we call that a tease. Oh, <laughs> tease. All right, hey Seth, go ahead. I mean because Seth, you and I had a pretty we had a pretty good conversation yeah. about the millennials at the expo.
1: Yeah, so okay, so a little bit of background. I'm actually a millennial. I'm 41 and I guess I'd be categorized into generation X, but we're kind of a, we're kind of that group of people that nobody talks about, you know. And sometimes I still find myself in, in being a millennial and, and, and very much in, engage with them. My story is a little bit different. I somehow ended up at the age of 41 with my youngest son being 16 years old, and and I've got a total of nine kids. So a lot of those, a lot of those kids, you know, they're all they're all millennials. I mean, and so when I look at um, some of the things that they're facing when they start to go out into the world, what I, my perspective as a dad, and and you know, my, I, I'm a Midwest kid, right? So I I grew up different than I'm sure a lot of people on either you know Sodom or Gomorrah side of the of the of the country did, and so. Um, but in a lot of ways, we're still the same. But I think the message that seems to that my kids seem to sometimes um, uh, get confused by once they start to go out on their own or trying to find their own way, kick them out of the nest, so to speak, is that I think the message they receive while they're growing up um, in in schools and such is that um, there's a confused message between uh, the individual and groups and i think that sometimes the message that um, it is meant well with regard to how my kids relate in groups comes out to be thinking that they have no ability to do things on their own they don't they can't just go choose to participate in something and I, and that goes back to what you were mentioning with the oil field, and really, you didn't mention just yet. But I remember in your in your talk, and I, I thought it was exactly right that the energy industry, when you go out and see how it's operating, is very much a a by uh, a choice um, a function. It's an in- a, a capitalistic endeavor. You need to be an entrepreneur. You you choose to participate. Nobody is going to give you a handout. Nobody's going to make you do anything. And I think that that, that type of uh, world view or perspective on, on entrepreneurship, specifically, or taking care of yourself, self-independence, that's something that I think really speaks deeply to the human nature. And I think that's why they really appeal to it. And I think, you know, I mean, we can go into a whole other philosophical discussion about, you know, uh, do, we, do we start going towards altruism and, and these kind of things or, or socialism and what's the difference? But I think that capitalism right now is is just the best system that we that has been created to foster mutual exchange and cooperation between people. I think that if, if everybody could would decide of their own free will and choice to participate in you know um, a, a an altruistic society, that would be great. I think there's some problem, there's some you know human nature things about that that are a little bit problematic, but. But at any rate, I think that's what that real appeal is And going into the energy industry. And, and look, one of the things I was telling you, too, is I don't think millennials are as dumb and as, and, as and, um, know, uh, lost in their ability to choose or kind of just robotic. I don't think that they're as much that way as they are presented. Um, and I think that's frustrating to a lot of millennials. And I think it's almost insulting, but they don't know necessarily exactly what to do with it. And then when you find somebody goes out into and and, and it has opportunity to you know do something for their own life um, and and pursue the American dream, you know, is really what that is. Um, they they gravitate to it, and I think that in a lot of ways we're missing the boat by by well downplaying. Millennials, to be honest with you, yes, we see that some of the crazies are out there, and I, and um, they get a lot of attention because that's what that's what the media media does. You know, they're looking for whatever can get the next clickbait. Um, but I don't think that's real representative of anyone any one category uh, in the populace, and that's that in, includes millennials. So well, that's my little short spiel. On yeah, it,
2: the the one thing I I've noticed and I've written down the last couple weeks is the energy industry seems to enable opportunity, not entitlement. And That's right. what, what you just said really kind of validated. I've been writing that down in interviews as we've been having these conversations. Marvin Nash, you, you, you teased that you might have a bigger soapbox than me. We only got 10 minutes left in the interview, so can you make it d- done in 10 minutes?
0: Uh, I'll get it done. So, <laughs> what, you know, I, I, I sometimes don't hesitate to tell everybody that, For 30 years, I was a professional rodeo clown, because when when you do that for a living, people often say, well, couldn't you get a real job? You know, I mean, what's what's wrong? And and, uh, for me, rodeo was was an industry that I worked in. Uh, My wife and I created two nationally known educational programs, one called Don't Clown Around With Drugs, the other one called Bullying Hurts. And uh, after doing that for 30 years, I left and and did get a real job with EOG uh, after I left the public service sector sector of life. But I didn't realize at the time that my rodeo history was preparing me for this water endeavor in this manner. And it came to me after going to a meeting in Austin with Scott Anderson and, and a couple of Environmental Defense Fund folks. The thirty years I spent in the rodeo industry I had a unique situation that I went back east an awful lot and I went from coast to coast. Not a lot of stuff, you know, in Wyoming the mainstream of, of the agriculture world. But I've probably had every conversation with every animal rights and every animal welfare person that that you could ever have. And I had to learn that they have they truly have a passion about animal welfare and they truly have a passion about protecting our environment from fossil fuels and coal and and those kind of things Uh, and and they specifically believe that their passion will lend itself to making and helping us have a, a better society but what we learned in the in the Western industry and the rodeo industry was how to find common ground and the energy industry sometimes says look if it wasn't for us we would be buying oil from overseas and we would be uh, not be energy independent and that would affect our national security there's a lot of truth to that but at the end of the day we're energy independent and we're protecting our national security from all of our citizens in our world and in our United States. So we have to learn how to find the common ground and and have solutions. That's why we say Conservation by Design and Encore Green are a win-win-win-win. If you're going to tell me that you want clean air and that you want to have a positive effect, on our our air quality and, and climate change, if that's the verbiage that you want to use. If you truly want to do that, then you're going to help me find a way to put this water on the ground, to grow more grass, to create more carbon capture. And if you're not going to help me do that, then I'm going to have a hard time believing that you're really looking for a solution. What you're really looking for is the solution that you want, without helping us find the solutions that are available. We learned in the in the in the rodeo industry, we used to catch a a, a a lot of conversations about what now are called rodeo athletes. And and Chad Berger, the Berger family from North Dakota, has raised some of the greatest rodeo athlete bucking bulls to ever walk the face of the earth. But we learned that we created a program called Born to Buck. One of the largest standing ovations ever given in rodeo history was at the Houston Stock Show and Rodeo. They turned out 10 baby bucking horses that for four or five years were going to be rodeo athletes. They turned out their mamas. They turned out their grandmas. And they turned out their great-grandmas. And then they discussed that... The, the necessity of the breeding programs and the health and the care that were given to these equine athletes. And we started changing the conversation. And we started finding the common ground. Don't come to Encore Green telling me that you want to create a, a clean air quality society and then say, but no, 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 the oil and gas company can't be the one to do it. But if you're in the oil and gas business, Don't come to me and say, those people over there trying to shut us down, they shouldn't have a voice. No, they should. And it's our responsibility to show them how and what and why we can do and how we can do these things. And what happens is, the Boulders and the Austins and the Fargos, their voice gets heard over and above the energy industry's voice because they do have the voting. the conversation. Let's go to Austin, let's go to Boulder, let's go to Fargo and let's say you got millions of acres. Would you be opposed to giving the oil and gas company a tax credit for cleaning up this water and putting it to beneficial use so that we could grow more grass and have a healthier soil so that we can then create more carbon capture? Because if that's what you're opposed to and you're just totally opposed to fossil fuel, Then environmentalists, you are no longer a part of the solution. Now you're a part of the problem. But I understand your passion for solving this problem. But let's figure out how to do it together. We all have a responsibility. Yeah, does the oil and gas company, are they a little brazen? Yeah, they are. You know, if 1D8 doesn't work in the old oil and gas industry, we just got two. And if two didn't work, we got three. (laughs) But we've had to change that of saying, well, we just have the one 8 let Let's figure out how to use it Yeah. Maybe we've got to go around this side of the road instead of just going straight down the middle. But that's what the Just Add Water and Conservation by Design allows us to do. It allows us predictability. We believe that the minute that you buy the minerals for a lease from under the ground, You need to call us so we can start putting together your water program. And we think that's where the changes start coming. Then you can go to the city council and say, yeah, we're going to drill these wells, but here's what the water's going to be used for, and here's the purpose it's going to be put to.
2: sense you bet so uh i got gotta wrap her up here go ahead and give out your information I'll people get and get in touch with you if somebody wants to uh find out more information
1: contact information on there.